Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the podcast called Getting to Know God. This is the place where we look to the scriptures and only the scriptures to know the one true living God of the Bible, letting him speak for himself in his word through the Psalms. I'm Brandon, also known as Pastor B-Side, and today we're going to look at the attributes of God as the Lord describes them in Psalm 7, and this is part two. The title for our study today is called How to Respond to God's Judgments. But real quick, before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that if you've been digging on these studies or the things that I do as a ministry, please hit the like button, share button, and make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast. I know it sounds silly, but it really helps make sure that this teaching can be more easily found for the folks who need it. The more action and activity that social media sees, the more likely it is to recommend it to others. And at the end of it all, it really helps us bring glory to the Lord. Amen? So enough of that. Let's check these verses. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, we're breaking down Psalm 7 into three parts. So let me read verses 1 through 9 now, and then we'll break down verses 6 through 9. So here's what it says. A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is any iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgments you have commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. So there you go. So check it out. The righteous justice of God is a hard dynamic to deal with. God's supreme righteousness is one of the defining traits that makes God who he is. He is always right in everything that he does. He is also right in all things that he's going to do in the future. The challenge is that in order for God's people to enjoy the benefits of God's righteousness, God has to get rid of the things that corrupt and pervert our connection to his righteousness. So since no one is righteous... God needs to purge unrighteousness from within his own people in order to preserve the integrity of the connection that he wants to have with us. God desires to overwhelm his people with goodness, but that can't happen as long as corruption is in the way. Well, thankfully, God's justice will get rid of the corruption that keeps us from enjoying the full measure of God's goodness and his glory, and that's going to happen in the end. The challenge is that God's justice involves God responding to things in ways that are violent and seemingly destructive. God doesn't deal with sin lightly. We can see how true that is by the work that he undertook himself to do when he died on the cross, where he utterly destroyed the eternal consequences of sin for those who believe. God hates sin and corruption. God responds violently and angrily against the things that keep his people from himself, 
from his purposes, and of course from his promises. The scriptures refer to God by the Hebrew name Kana, which translates into the English word jealous. In other words, God's righteousness causes him to respond against sin, almost like a jealous husband would respond to seeing the threats of another man flirting with his wife. <laughs> a situation like that can get pretty intense pretty quick. As God's people, we're like the Lord's wife in that example, and sin is like the man that tries to lure us away from our husband. God, of course, is the husband in this example, and best believe he gets really ticked off by this kind of stuff. This is the way he describes his attitude against sin. This means that people get hurt. If God is going to destroy the work of sin and evil like a jealous husband, the people that seek to separate God's people from the Lord are going to be destroyed ultimately. Now, this is good in one sense and sad in another. It's good that God will destroy evil in the world to ensure a pure connection to him and perfect access to the goodness of his glory, at least for his own people, right? Now, it's sad to know that God will respond in his anger and wrath against people like human beings who deny him and try to separate other people, his people, from him. This dynamic, it makes it hard to deal with God's judgments. You got genuine believers that love the Lord, and you have non-believers that don't care anything about the Lord. The Bible teaches that God will respond appropriately to each group, and it's not always pretty. Even for the people of God, there's sin in our hearts that God needs to purge, and that can get ugly too. That gets tough, right? God chastens those who he loves, and the Bible says that that chastening is painful and difficult. Nobody likes it in the moment that is taking place. So, as believers, we should desire God's righteous judgments, believe it or not. If God's judgments purge sin from our souls while preserving them for eternal life, that's a good thing. We should want that. If God's judgments purge sinners that hate God's righteousness from this world, that's actually a good thing too, since we can't really receive the full benefits of God's blessing in an impure environment. So that stuff's got to go. But at the same time, we can't be excited about the destruction of other human beings. Like, that's not cool. Heaven forbid, God's people from celebrating the destruction of other people. God doesn't. Sometimes it seems like that's what God's people are doing in the Bible, but that's not the case. God himself does not take pleasure in the destruction of people. Still, he's got to punish sin one way or another. Seeing this complexity, it's important to rely on the Holy Spirit to know how to balance the joy we should have over the fulfillment of God's righteous judgments, while also having compassion for people who actually might be destroyed. Thankfully, the scriptures provide clear examples of how God's people were able to demonstrate that balance in the past. So in Psalm 7, verses 6 through 9, the Bible shows that David had a clear understanding of both the horror of God's judgments, but also the awesome results that come as a result of those judgments. This part of Psalm 7, again, I'll read it so we can be refreshed in remembering what it says. It says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. Now, at first glance, it might seem as if David was calling to God to destroy his enemies out of, like, malice and vengeance. That's not what's happening here. It's true that David went to the Lord in hopes for him to pour out his anger. However, David also explained what he meant. It wasn't as if David was rejoicing in the destruction of people. For example, in Luke chapter 9, the apostle John and his brother James were offended at the way that they were being treated by the Samaritans. In their anger and frustration, 
they actually asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven to consume and destroy those people. I mean, these dudes were crazy trying to get back at people that mistreated them. They weren't looking for justice. Jesus obviously shut them down at that time. And even though James and John felt that they would have been doing God a service, trying to become administrators of God's righteousness, they were motivated by their flesh to do so, right? Other people hurt them and they wanted to get back at them. And that's what was really going on there. And Jesus called him out on that. David's situation is different. David sought the Lord to pour out his anger, not David's anger, God's anger, but only because of the conduct of his enemies compared to the previous declarations of God's word. David wasn't seeking God's anger in order to protect his own integrity or even maintain his own reputation. David didn't want people to think that it's possible to mock God in such a fashion and actually get away with it. That's what's going on here. David wanted his own people to fear God and the consequences of offending him through the judgment of wicked people. So verse 7, again, it simply says, So the congregation of the people shall surround you, for their sakes, therefore, return on high. So notice that David sought the Lord to lift himself up. In other words, David wanted God to be exalted by his own judgments, where, like, James and John wanted to exalt themselves by being the tough guys that bring down fire from heaven, right? Bit of a different situation there. So David wanted God to administrate his justice because of the actions and motives of his enemies. David explained that his enemies were responding in rage against him, but that rage was ultimately against God, as we talked about in the last episode. The word rage refers to arrogance. David's enemies felt like they could treat God's people however they wanted and then get away with it. They felt like they could pick a fight with God by harassing God's people, trying to mess up God's plans that are carried out through his people, and they felt that they could get away with that. That's not happening. It's also important to notice that David wanted God to pour out his anger according to the judgments that God had already commanded. So there's an there's a established principle there that David was referring to, and it's not his own principle. The scriptures reference the past tense of God's commands, meaning that David was exalting the importance of God's word that was previously spoken. David's prayer request here was based on a certain standard that God had already put in place in the past through his word. That's the basis of his prayer request, so to speak. Even though the persecution that David was experiencing was new to David at that time, the declarations of God's righteousness were not. David was calling to God to respond according to his own word, as documented in the law. David was calling upon God to simply do the things that God already proclaimed were right by his own holy standards written in the law. David didn't ask God to be the instrument of vengeance like, you know, James and John, but instead he wanted God to stand up in order to uphold the integrity of his own righteousness according to the things that God previously declared in the word through the administration of God's justice against those who deny God and his word. So essentially David was just asking God to be who God is based on what God said about himself. So David was passionate in his request to God so that he even sang this request to the Lord because he understood the effects of God's justice. So remember how in the last episode we talked about how Psalm 7 is a song, right? David knew that the assembling of God's people in God's presence is only able to take place 
through the conduit of God's judgments against the wicked. So since God desires for his blessings to be received in purity, right? There can't be any imperfection at all. God needs to remove impurity first. And David knew that God's destruction of the wicked, right? The pouring out of God's anger and wrath was actually required in order for the blessing of God's people to be enjoyed at its full measure. David knew and understood these things because these are the principles that God's law teaches. The issues of sacrifices, the celebration of the feast days, things like the Ten Commandments, of course, all of those things work together to teach these principles, ultimately leading to Jesus as the fulfillment of all these things. The Bible teaches that the judgments of God are the channel by which God's people are able to dwell together in his presence to enjoy the eternal blessings that he promises. It's by the judgments of God that God's people are able to surround the Lord to properly praise his name. David didn't seek God's justice just for himself, but for the benefit of all of God's people. David wanted the Lord to exercise his supreme authority for the sake of all of God's people. David's mention of God's whole congregation in verse 7 shows that while David desired God's destructive work in his judgments, it wasn't to get back at the people who made his life hard. It's not like David hated Cush and wanted God to send Cush to hell because he made David's life hard. That's not what's being said here, but there's a lot of people who interpret it that way. David wanted the eternal promises of God to be fulfilled for all of God's people so that the full measure of God's promises and blessings could be enjoyed by every one of God's people without any restraint or corruption of any kind. David wanted God to be worshipped in the true manner that God deserves to be worshipped by all of his people without anything corrupting or hindering, because God is deserving of that. That's what's going on here. David wanted God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible teaches that in order for that to happen, God has to judge sin and get rid of it, at which point the true people of God can praise him perfectly in purity. David desired the judgments of God, not just against his enemies, but even upon himself. Remember how he invited the judgments of God upon his own life, knowing that his soul would be preserved according to how the Lord's righteousness works. Again, verse 8 says, The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. So while David referred to his own righteousness and integrity, he was not suggesting that he had an acceptable brand of righteousness within himself according to his natural condition. David was not boasting in himself in any way as if he was some exceptional human being because he was, you know, the great King David, the biblical hero of faith. That's not what's being said here. David knew that he was the Lord's anointed as the King of Israel, but because of that, he understood his fit in God's plans to a certain degree. David knew that God's purpose for his life was to use him as an instrument of God's own righteousness unto the revelation of the Messiah, who is Jesus. Now, David wasn't speaking about his own righteousness, but about the faith that he had in the integrity of God's grace, God's goodness, and faithfulness. Remember that David began Psalm 7 by saying, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. So you can see what he's saying there, right? David's righteousness and integrity came by the same means that it does for everyone else who believes. The just and the righteous shall live by faith. And that's what verse 1 of Psalm 7 establishes. 
that David's righteousness, referred to in verse 8, is connected to the faith that he kind of opened up with in verse 1. David wasn't confident in himself because he felt like he was a swell guy or a good citizen or an awesome king because he won some battles. David entrusted his life to the Almighty God and his eternal purposes. David believed in the revelation of God, his supreme righteousness, his supreme control, and the perfect goodness of his purposes. David wasn't righteous by his own standards, but was confident in God's mercy and his grace to protect him when that judgment comes to the wicked because of the manner in which God appointed David as his own servant. David understood his position in the Lord as his servant and trusted in the goodness of God to protect the souls of those who serve him and his purposes by faith, upholding the integrity of his own name in the process. So then we see that David expressed his desire for God's judgments because he desired the end of all sin and wickedness so that the pure holiness, righteousness, and goodness of God could be seen and enjoyed according to God's eternally unconditional promises. Psalm 7 verse 9 says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. So David, like all Christians should, wanted an end to all wickedness, so that God's righteousness could be established as the supreme standard in all the world without any hindrance or perversion of any kind. David knew that the means by which God's faithful servants are established and made firm in his goodness, without threats, interruptions, distortion of any kind, right, is through God's judgments of the wicked. But God has to make it all go away. God has to judge fully, meaning that he's got to purge the corrupting influence of sin in the hearts of his people while preserving their souls and also utterly destroy the sin and rebellion that fills the world through the influences of demonic principalities and the people that they operate through who are non-believers. God promised to do that, but we're all still waiting, right? David was confident that he would remain safe in the midst of God's judgments against the wicked when they come because he understood the basis of God's judgments. He understood those things because he learned them in the Word of God, specifically in God's law, because that's the version of the Word that David had at his time. So God examines the hearts of all people in order to know those who are truly his and those who are not. Now, a lot of people say that we're all God's children. That is not true. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the just shall live by faith, and God knows how to examine the hearts and minds of people to find the only brand of faith that he counts as equal to his righteousness. And we're seeing an example of that here in David. Even though the wicked might put on fronts in public to look like their sin is a form of goodness, God knows. The world may examine the goodness of people based on the things that you know they see and hear and perceive by human means, but God measures goodness much differently. David, knowing his position in the Lord on account of God's gracious calling and the purposes of the Lord to do so, he, David was confident in God's integrity, in God's faithfulness and trustworthiness to preserve his servants and bless them immeasurably once wickedness had come to an end. So when considering the nature of God's promises and the goodness of them and the manner in which they come, it's important to remember all these truths that we've just talked about to ensure that our hope and joy, like David's, isn't tainted by the issues of our own flesh that can easily influence us, even as Christians. Which means that 
we probably shouldn't be hating on non-believers asking God to bring down fire and brimstone on everyone that treats us bad, right? Jesus established how we're supposed to operate, and it's to love our enemies. How do we love our enemies? Well, we love the righteousness of God, and then the Spirit will teach us the distinction between desiring the righteous judgments of God, but not at the expense of the souls that we want to be saved that aren't yet saved, right? And that's what the Bible teaches about the one that we know as God. Look, it's good to crave the blessings of God, but we have to remember how the Bible teaches that those blessings will come. God is not interested in distributing pure blessings in a corrupted world. He's going to judge sin first. Having said that, we should know that it's good to desire God's coming judgment, but again, not at the expense of the people who might be judged. If we truly have the Spirit of God, right, and the love of Jesus in us, we can't be content knowing that the Lord's judgments are coming soon and people we know will suffer the consequences of that and be condemned. We need to warn them. It's one thing to desire God's blessings and righteousness like David did. It's another thing to think so selfishly that we have no concern at all for those who will be judged so that we're unwilling to pray for them, minister to them, and engage them in the work of the gospel in hopes that they would be saved. Someone had compassion to share with us, right? So we should do the same. So before I get out of here, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder to please take a second and make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you share the link to this podcast on your social media stuff and make sure that you're letting people know about what we got going on here. We need all the people we can to know the truth about God as he wrote it in his word and the hope that he wants to give. Don't keep the people you know from hearing the truth and hope that they may need, even may need it right now. And also keep in mind that all the Bible teaching I do here is 100% listener supported. This means that I depend on listeners like you to pay the bills for the tools that make this stuff available to you, as well as pay for all the time that it takes to study the word and prepare to this degree. And believe me, it takes a while. So if this podcast is like legitimately helpful to you and you value this sort of teaching and dig on the beats and you know just what we do as a ministry, please prayerfully consider sending a donation this way. We're a legit nonprofit. We have a 501c3 operating through our parent ministry called Proper Knowledge Ministries. So if you'd like to partner with the work of the gospel that we're doing, you can visit www.pastorbside, like the B-side of a record, hit the support tab, and give any amount that you're able as the Lord leads. And believe me, every bit helps. And if the Lord would lead you, maybe even consider partnering monthly with us making your gift recurring, kind of like tithing to a church, because church is founded on the true teaching of the Bible, and that's exactly what we do here. And as you guys know, it's hard to find solid Bible teaching in any place that calls itself church these days. So something to consider. Ministries like this, and not just mine, but many others, they need support just like any other, with or without the walls, the pews, and the pulpits. So for all the false teaching being shared out there, look, let's partner together and make a strong effort to get more good teaching out there. So thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the study. And until next time, peace out.